It's Friday, March 20th, 2020, and for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Just three months into 2020, the global economy's turned upside down. As I record this, we're at the beginning of what may be a profound and prolonged period of disruption. But even before the shockwave of COVID-19 hit Western countries, big changes were already afoot in the energy market. At the beginning of the year, there were signs of a coming realignment of investment capital away from fossil fuels and toward cleaner sources of energy. Meanwhile, large companies and their investors were taking on an increasingly prominent role in pushing for change. The appetite for companies to be advocates for climate, clean energy, and clean transportation solutions is on the rise. Companies are willing to lend their voices in state capitals. They're authoring op-eds. They're meeting privately with lawmakers. On this episode, we'll try to understand how big business is evolving on climate and what that might mean for Pennsylvania. But first... Hi, this is David Woodwell, president of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. And uh, just as we lead into another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies, I uh, just want to say, take a few minutes to talk about uh, what PEC's up to, what we see going forward, and what we don't know, which is mostly we don't know. Uh, like everyone else, we are taking recommendations from the CDC and local officials very seriously. PEC staff are working from home, working remotely. And we are still working on our projects. Uh, that's what we feel we can do. We don't have any brilliant medical advice. We're not medical professionals. Listen to them. Uh, but we can say that we think the economy's got to keep going. And for that reason, we're still working. Uh, we're lucky enough to have grants in place and enough work to do that our staff can continue to work on trail projects, on stormwater issues, uh, on uh, other trails and outdoor recreation pieces, on issues affecting communities and landscapes, on uh, watershed issues and on general policy in the state. Uh, we are going to try to do our part, see what happens here. Uh, but know that if you're one of our partners, if we've got projects with you, we want to continue them. We plan to. Uh, if you've got issues about how that goes forward, please let us know. Call us, email us. Uh, our staff is remote, but still very much on the ball and working. Uh, we're very lucky to have an incredibly professional uh, really hardworking staff that's still going at it here uh, in these times that are very much in upheaval. So just want to say that maybe the uh, podcast here can be a little bit of a respite, think about something else for a little while. Uh, but again, uh, we're with you all. Stay safe and please contact us if one of the projects that you are a partner with us on uh, is of interest to you or has some needs. They say life comes at you fast, and that has probably never been more true than it has in the last two weeks. As if the economic impact of a global pandemic wasn't enough by itself, oil prices also plunged below $30 a barrel this week after Russia and Saudi Arabia failed to reach agreement on production levels. And I note that by way of a disclaimer, because the conversation you're about to hear was recorded just a few weeks ago, not that long ago in absolute terms, but certainly before any of the events of the last couple of weeks had taken place. 
Uh, this interview features Ali Gold Roberts and Stephen Clark, both of Ceres. It's a nonprofit that advocates for sustainability in business and supports companies that are working to become more environmentally and socially responsible. I wanted to hear their thoughts on a pair of news stories that broke in January. One was the release of the World Economic Forum's annual Global Risks Report, in which environmental problems, and climate change in particular, accounted for three of the top five listed economic threats. The other was an investor letter from Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, one of the world's largest and most influential asset management firms. Warning of what he called a fundamental reshaping of finance, Fink announced that BlackRock would begin moving away from fossil fuel investments. Well, with Pennsylvania considering ambitious market-based climate solutions like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and Governor Tom Wolf's Transportation Climate Initiative, I was curious about what these shifts in the global outlook might mean for the Commonwealth. Here's my conversation with Stephen Clark and Allie Gold-Roberts. Stephen, Allie, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having us. Great. Likewise. Before we get into talking about Pennsylvania's role in the global uh, economy as it relates to energy and climate issues, tell me a bit about Ceres, the work that you do, your mission, initiatives you've got going currently, and, and where that connects with Pennsylvania. Sure. So Ceres is a national sustainability advocacy organization, and we're really focused on building uh, solutions for the economy. We work with some of the most influential companies and investors around the globe to uh, move the markets in a more sustainable direction, whether that's working specifically with companies on how uh, to set sustainability goals and how to build more climate-competent boards, to working with policymakers on what are the policies needed to drive decarbonization and investment in uh, electric vehicles, to work with investors on how to move company or excuse me move assets from uh, carbon intensive into clean. These are all tools in our toolbox that are necessary to really build uh, the sustainable global economy of the future. So the idea I want to explore today is that there is something changing in the way that the global economic community, I guess, governments and policymakers and, and businesses are thinking about climate and as it relates to their business decisions in the immediate future. You know, tell me if I'm off base with this, but my sense has been that for the most part, historically, you're pushing companies to be more sustainable in their practices, somewhat for the sake of I don't know if you'd call it optics or, or, or PR or just uh, fulfilling a leadership role within the corporate community, all these sort of high-minded but a little bit maybe abstract reasons. Suddenly, it seems to me that there is a lot more attention being given to like what are increasingly recognized as real immediate costs and, and, and threats. I'm talking about the, the World Economic Forum report where you've got stakeholders saying that, you know, they view these threats, climate change, environmental uh, problems, as really constituting the biggest threat to to their prospects going forward and the, and the stability of the system. And in particular, there was the announcement from BlackRock and Larry Fink saying, and I'll just read the, the quote from his letter. He, he writes, awareness is rapidly changing. I believe we're on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance. In the near future, sooner than most anticipate, there will be a significant reallocation of capital. That's pretty remarkable to me, but you tell me, is this a new development? Are we looking at a situation where climate change is real enough and immediate enough that it's being affected, that it's being reflected in markets where you would see a big change, a big shift in where these investment dollars go, as he's describing? Is that happening? If so, 
on what time scale and will that be soon enough? Yeah, so great question. And I think the, the short answer is yes. Um, we've seen increasing amounts of investor pressure on companies uh, to, uh, to, to take action um, in regard to the tremendous risk that you outlined. Uh, the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, we worked closely with them. They released some analysis last year um, that showed that, you know, for the largest uh, publicly traded companies in the U.S., we're talking trillions of dollars of risk um, stemming from climate. Um, uh, so that broad recognition from both investors and, and corporate leaders um, has really led to significant amounts of um, uh, action from some of the leading companies, um, uh, both domestically and globally, on the clean energy and climate front. And there are a variety of different um, trends one could um, look to that sort of underscore some of this action. So, for example, last year we had a record year in terms of the, the amount of uh, renew renewable energy that companies were signing up for, over 10 gigawatts worth of renewable energy. So a, a record year on that front. Um, and, and likewise, you're seeing um, significant investments in electric vehicles, um, energy efficiency. So we are really, we've really reached a, um, an important tipping point where um, you're seeing significant action from companies um, on the clean energy and climate front. The companies that you work with, I'm wondering what they perceive as the biggest issues. Uh, what's what's motivating them? There, there, there are a few. Um, I think at the top of the list is is the risk piece. Um, so uh, a lot of these companies, through their value change, through um, through some of the products they make, um, um, facing significant um, exposure when it comes to um, uh, climate change. So that's 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 a that's a key issue. There's also the business case. So for um, for large portions of um, uh, the country, renewable energy is cost competitive um, with fossil fuel energy, natural gas. So there are places like Texas or the Southwest um, where wind is actually cheaper than natural gas um, in many situations. Or um, so that so the business case is an important um, uh, reason why some of these companies are are taking significant action to increase their up uptake of, of clean energy. And then there's also the reputational risk. Customers and other key stakeholders um, for these companies are also asking for these companies to take action. Um, so you're seeing employees stepping up in places like Amazon and other large companies that, um, that are making explicit um, uh, demands from corporate leadership to, to step up. So, I think those are three of the major reasons where we're seeing uh, companies uh, take action. It's the risk, um, the business opportunity, um, and then pressure from key stakeholders like investors, employers, and customers. We've been seeing for a while this trend of uh, renewable energy technologies becoming cheaper and cheaper and demand for for those growing are we i mean are we primarily talking about a situation where companies and investors are looking down that road and seeing that you know it's a dead end uh, or, or rather that, that that fossil fuels are not going to be profitable indefinitely which again that like that has been evident for some time what it sounds like what's new potentially is the engagement with shareholders employees and and just other voices in the public uh, discourse about climate I think it's a combination of both. Um, you've, you've seen a significant drop in some of the alternatives in terms of price. So I'm thinking in particular uh, storage uh, when it comes to electric vehicles. 
um, we've seen record drops there in terms of um, uh, the price that you have for uh, for that technology. Um, same thing with uh, solar and wind. Um, so that that is sort of an ongoing trend, but we've seen that accelerate um, um, of late, and also the access um, that that uh, some of the um, uh, that we see as well. The companies are are, are becoming more savvy in terms of um, identifying ways in which they can buy these resources, whether it's through long-term contracts or other financial instruments. Um, so it's it's easier for them to access um, access that technology. Um, but to your point, we are also seeing the investor side of the equation being more active because of um, uh, sort of an increased awareness around the risk in particular. Um, and I think, you know, the IPCC report from 2018, um, I think was widely uh, recognized amongst corporate leaders as sort of a, a bellwether moment in terms of this recognition that um, the, we really reached sort of this decade of um, opportunity. If we don't cut emissions in half, basically, which is what the report called for, and then get to net zero by 2050, you know, we've really baked in climate change at a level which we can't manage and pose a significant risk. So I think it's a combination of that increased awareness from the investor community that stemmed from all of the attention around the IPCC report, as well as these decreasing trends in um, clean energy alternatives to um, the potential for price volatility with fossil fuels. And I would just add to, to Stephen's answer that I think uh, the other pieces that we're seeing, lawmakers also react to that ambition, and that has created a policy environment that's more supportive for companies to meet their ambitious sustainability goals and encouraging lawmakers themselves to be more ambitious. So there's an important feedback loop between private sector ambition and states you know, taking executive action or passing legislation that starts to get just beyond the electricity sector, too, and really start looking at transportation and buildings and the other tools that are deeply necessary to get to net zero. So we're looking at a, a global scale. If we can kind of zoom in and focus on Pennsylvania, just looking over headlines from the last few weeks, Pennsylvania-based companies or companies that do a lot of business here seem to be on this uh, on this bandwagon. Uh, we just got word from Dominion Energy. They're shooting for net zero by 2050. American Eagle Outfitters, based in Pittsburgh, where I'm located, uh, is going for 2030. Over in Hershey, the famous Hershey Chocolate Company, they have been voicing concerns about uh, supply chain disruption and just the availability of the materials they need to make their product. So this is on the minds of the business community in our state. Meanwhile, you've got a changing energy economy, natural gas is surpassing coal for power generation. And obviously, people are increasingly concerned about impacts on our tourism industry and outdoor recreation industry, which is one of the largest in the nation at like $29 billion. Obviously, environmental impacts are going to be pretty relevant in that space, too. So refocus this for Pennsylvania for me. How does this global dynamic play out within the industries that that you guys follow and work with here in our state? Which sectors are most at risk presently? Yeah, so just to the first part of your question, I'll just say that Ceres, um, our state policy program really focuses on states where we see an opportunity to move the needle on climate, clean energy, clean transportation policy, and where the business community has a significant footprint in driving that change. And that's why we've been doing work in Pennsylvania now for over three years um, and have been working with businesses 
on their own operational leadership, as Stephen mentioned, but then also on building a policy environment that's supportive. So as I think you know, um, we organized a group of over a dozen companies, investors, colleges, and universities to outline their support to lawmakers for market-based solutions aimed at reducing emissions, increasing in energy efficiency, increasing investment in renewables, and of course, clean transportation. The high um, priority topics in the legislature and uh, part of the dynamics we're seeing throughout uh, the Commonwealth this year. But to your question around the commitments that companies are making and the ambition that we're seeing in Pennsylvania, you know, there are a number of leading um, businesses who certainly are looking at their own operations, but now are also transitioning to policy. And for example, just the, the steel industry alone, which 70% of the U.S. steel industry has either set or agreed to set GHG reduction targets in the last year. That's huge for one sector to take on that um, issue. And given you know the Pittsburgh footprint, looking at just U.S. Steel um, alone is investing a billion dollars to upgrade their Mon Valley works outside of, of Pittsburgh. So these, you know, it's not just the consumer brands like American Eagle and Hershey and Ikea and Nestle and Mars, who certainly all have an important Pennsylvania footprint and are doing that work, but it's part of a global narrative um, and seeing some of the most energy-intensive industries start to really take this on is an important signal to the marketplace, no question. I do want to hear more about where you see an opportunity to move the needle at the level of state policy or, or wherever you're seeing that happen. But I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that this isn't strictly a doom and gloom scenario where the market's being motivated by fear and anxiety about what could happen. But there is also – there's upside here, right? There is potential for companies and investors to do well as we transition to a fully zero carbon uh, economy. Could you talk a bit more about that and what – which sectors, I guess, might benefit from 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 this shift? Uh, what what sort of opportunities might be available? Well, obviously, you know, the clean energy sector is is a growing industry, and we're seeing the clean energy sector um, from solar to energy storage to energy efficiency. The jobs in that community are starting to outpace healthcare and obviously the fossil fuel industry. So that's you know at the forefront of the of this. But also as we look at the e-commerce space and, you know, Pennsylvania has a retiring population looking at how do we get um, new and young people into the economy in Pennsylvania, we have to look at the businesses like Amazon, like um, uh, eBay, like others who are, you know, e-economy and, and think about looking at um, the shipping industry and the transportation. And that's why Ceres just recently launched uh, the Corporate EV Alliance, which is an effort to get companies who are interested in really eventually electrifying their fleets completely to work together and figure out what are the challenges, how do they work with the automakers to get the models of vehicles that they need available, what are the policies that they need to build out the charging infrastructure, what are, what's the rate design that has to happen with utilities. So this partnership that we just recently launched is an effort to create a space for companies to roll up their sleeves and answer those questions. And as Stephen mentioned, we've seen a lot of that advancement happen on the electric power side. Companies know how to very easily um, invest in renewables now, and now we really need to go to some of the we, – we've hit the low-hanging fruit. We've now got to go for some of the harder things, and transportation is definitely in that space. Um, to, your, to your other question, I'll just say on other sectors that are, you know, 
potentially poised to benefit. I think you're looking at the pharma industry, which is also a big part of Pennsylvania. We're seeing ambition there around emissions reduction and energy use and energy waste. Um, and so those are two that I would just I would mention. But the last would be healthcare. Um, we have seen incredible ambition by hospitals and the healthcare industry. Hospitals really have to be the, at the front line of defenses on climate. That's why Ceres partners with a great organization called Healthcare Without Harm. Um, and as we look at transportation emissions reductions, this is the number one way to really start to go after asthma. And that's when we're talking about cause and, and effect and cost. Um, that's where tackling transportation emissions will be essential, and that's why, you know, the Northeast states and, and a number of governors are considering things like the Transportation Climate Initiative um, as a means to start to move down that track. Well, and speaking of low-hanging fruit, we know that energy efficiency upgrades are one of the most, I guess, sort of cost-effective ways to reduce overall emissions. And that's certainly a place where hospitals in particular, these large sprawling facilities that we have in Pittsburgh, at least old buildings very often, relative to the cost of making those improvements, the savings could be significant, just looking at the healthcare sector. Absolutely. And, you know, I, um, until I started working with Healthcare Without Arm, had no idea that the air within the hospitals has to recirculate immediately because of concerns around infectious diseases. I mean, these are unbelievably energy intensive facilities. And in states across the country, Ohio, Massachusetts, Nevada, we've seen um, energy efficiency projects be targeted at hospitals in particular, and some of the greatest bang for the buck be achieved uh, as a result. So you were talking before about the disconnect between the way people view uh, these sort of consumer-facing companies and their sustainability efforts and the larger structural issues that, that they have to contend with. And Pennsylvania, I think, is a good example of that insofar as we're a big energy producer. We export a lot of electricity. Obviously, we produce a lot of natural gas. Companies like Hershey, like American Eagle – uh, U.S. Steel even, I guess, might want to decarbonize, but they don't have a lot of direct control over emissions from something like power generation. And that's a focus for PEC currently. One possible solution that's being discussed in, in, you know, in state government and that we're supportive of is a cap and trade market that would ideally create some competition, would create incentives for companies to compete to, to lower their emissions. What do you think would be the impact in Pennsylvania if we were to establish such a program? What would be the best way to, to do that? How would it affect both you know, our economy in the state and the larger market of which we are a part? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a lot of private sector support for market-based solutions to reduce emissions. We've seen um, companies with a footprint or headquarters in Pennsylvania be advocates for the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, both in Pennsylvania and beyond those borders. Some of those companies also have a significant footprint in Virginia and have been part of the advocacy there, this legislative session to get Virginia to join Reggie, um, including our friends um, at, uh, you know, in the, in the food and beverage space, looking at both Mars and Nestle, who have a footprint in both of these states. Um, we have seen uh, Reggie being a, a very effective program in the Northeast in driving dollars in energy efficiency. So really just the issue we just mentioned. Um, and in, that's really where we've seen the most return on those investments in reducing emissions, but then also really helping people cut their energy costs. Um, so that's certainly a place where we see potential and thinking about colleges and universities who also have sweeping complexes and facilities. That's a great place to see energy efficiency dollars be invested. 
the other place is just more local homegrown renewable energy. We've seen um, wind start to take off in Pennsylvania, and I think there's appetite and interest and more. A lot of companies are doing virtual power purchase agreements in places like Texas and Iowa and Indiana, and I have a feeling Pennsylvania would love to take advantage of that um, appetite by corporate buyers and do some of those projects in um, Pennsylvania. So I think um, a program like Reggie uh, for Pennsylvania would be hugely helpful in moving the needle in decarbonizing the electricity sector. And Stephen can talk a little bit about the scope three emission impact for these companies. But as businesses are really looking at their own operations, they're recognizing that they need to start to think about um, their employees and their customers if we're going to get to net zero. And that's where these ambitious market-based policies um, are going to be essential to meeting those goals. Yeah, Ali really nailed it on the head in terms of that linkage between you know, policy <clears throat> enabling these companies to achieve um, most of their clean energy and climate targets. Um, and in particular, um, you know, most of the companies, especially the large ones that we've dealt with, so the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, and others that have these value and supply chains that span states and countries, um, they, they recognize the challenge um, of addressing scope three emissions in particular um, uh, uh, through policy. So we've seen a, a significant increase in in, the, in in these companies becoming more involved in um, supporting policies like cap and trade or a carbon pricing mechanism that can help them address their scope three emission challenges. So lots to be done at the state level in policy on, on energy and encouraging these kinds of changes. Can we also talk a little bit about the going going back to the economic implications and the idea that there is this sea change coming in the way capital gets invested? That's going to have reverberations throughout the world economy and not all of them are going to be, you know, absorbed easily. I'm wondering what sort of steps we should be looking to our leaders at the state level to take, you know, what tools they may have in their kit to kind of manage that transition, both to encourage, you know, divestment from fossil fuels, but also to help companies and the people they employ and consumers weather that uh, that change. Yeah, well, you know, I think executive action at the state level has been a growing trend under the U.S. Climate Alliance, and we're thrilled that uh, Governor Wolf joined the alliance in 2018. And, you know, I know uh, those governors have used a lot of tools in the toolbox from electrifying state fleets, uh, setting ambitious renewable energy targets for state-owned facilities, investing in energy efficiency for state facilities as well, which would probably be one of the best ways to save taxpayer dollars. Um, but then also thinking about other kind of executive action, whether that's, um, you know, things like Reggie, the Transportation Climate Initiative, which would be uh, an emissions trading program for transportation and get towards uh, an opportunity for states to further invest in electric vehicle infrastructure and public transit, which are certainly high priorities across the Northeast Corridor. But then also looking at things like how do we protect California's waiver and the Advanced Clean Car Program, which uh, Pennsylvania is certainly part of that effort. So those are just some of the, the many pieces. The other uh, thing I would just say is we're seeing a lot of momentum and advocacy around the regional collaboration. So no state has to do this alone, and that's where Reggie is really important, and, and also the Transportation Climate Initiative, that there are economies of scale as states partner together. 
but also for companies who have a footprint or facilities or employees in multiple states that those costs are spread out and that uh, states are able to compete then for those investments within those communities. So the, the collaboration between governors and states is, and, and bipartisanship, ideally, um, is really important. We're in this situation where attitudes are shifting rapidly. The business community increasingly sees the danger and also the opportunity. Certainly the public sentiment has, has moved dramatically, but as is often the case, the political conversation may be kind of lagging behind in some areas, maybe partly because there hasn't up till now been that much emphasis on these immediate economic, financial, business you know, impacts from climate change. How do we change that? How do we make the political conversation about climate reflect those concerns? That's a great question. I mean, I think um, there's a growing emphasis by companies in looking at their uh, political spending and their disclosure of the advocacy work that they're doing, the alignment between companies' trade associations and their own positions on climate. Um, so I, I think to get to your point, this is starting to have an impact both in the private sector and with individual voters, and, and we're certainly seeing that momentum and enthusiasm I will just say for series and the businesses we work with, the appetite for companies to be advocates for climate, clean energy, and clean transportation solutions is on the rise. Companies are willing to lend their voices in state capitals. They're authoring op-eds. They're meeting privately with lawmakers. And it's not about their own self-interested access to renewable energy, but or energy efficiency or whatever it may be, but also really about how do we reduce emissions at the broad you know, electricity sector as a whole, the transportation sector as a whole. How do we decarbonize buildings? How do we make clean energy available for employees and in customers? Recognizing that the health concerns and all of the risks that we talked about at the top of the podcast are going to have an impact on everyone. And that's where the work around scope three emissions and how companies start really um, taking on their responsibility as global citizens and leaders in this space um, is on the rise and, and certainly something that we're encouraging with investors, with companies, with um, employees, and uh, with students as we're seeing more happen on college campuses as well. And just to quickly add to that, um, you know, in addition to the advocacy vote from constituents and, and um, companies, I think the, the, to the degree that, we, that constituents um, and uh, let policymakers are, are increasingly exposed to these new technologies. Um, you know, the wind farms that are going up on ridgelines in Pennsylvania, the companies that can hire more people because they're saving 20% because of energy um, efficiency investments, improved uh, air quality because of increased um, electric vehicle use. When, when the policymakers hear about these, you know, positive uh, developments from their constituents or from companies, I think that also plays a significant role in influencing um, uh, their decision-making around key uh, policy issues. So um, uh, looking at this increased uptake of clean energy technologies by these companies makes them more competitive and increases the chances or likelihood of them staying in Pennsylvania, but it also provides real-world tangible examples of the positive business um, benefits from these investments in uh, clean energy and technology. Stephen Clark is Director of Corporate Clean Energy Leadership, and Ali Gold-Roberts is Director of State Policy for Ceres. Thank you both so much for your time and your insights today. 
Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. And that's Pennsylvania Legacies for this week, now being produced out of my basement in Pittsburgh. We'll keep it going in the weeks ahead, so check back in Friday after next for a new episode. And if you happen to find yourself with a little extra time on your hands lately, now is a great time to catch up on the back catalog. All past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies are available to stream at PECPA.org. That is our website where you can learn all about Peck's work in the state capitol and all across the Commonwealth. Connect with Peck on Facebook and on Twitter. Follow at PECPA. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening.